All right, cheers. To a long day in court. To an exhausting week. <laughs> I know. But, uh, but a good week, I think. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> so far, so good. So we were talking in, in the last episode, we were talking about a case that we were working on. We wanted to break it down into all of the various segments and how this, uh, this trial unfolded. And um, part of that, and, and it is a really, I think, intriguing and important issue to talk about because this legislation is fairly new and people are still struggling with it. Talking about these pretrial applications that an accused has to bring now. And uh, we've had some really interesting stuff. And just actually today, it's so funny because I, I told you I'm starting to realize how often I say actually. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> actually. I actually say actually all the time. Um, it's a great word. But um, but we had a, an interesting situation with um, one of our colleagues as well who, who came across what we're starting to see more and more, which is a question of the role of a complainant's lawyer in these pretrial applications because complainants are, are provided a lawyer at the expense of the state. And, um, and, and there's some, I think, real confusion about how far they can go in terms of submissions. And we've had clients too that are just kind of going, you know, is their lawyer going to be there at trial? Yeah. So, so I think it's important to talk about that aspect to this. And the so, fact so let's that, let's frame yeah. this for one second. So, if everybody remembers, this is a three-part series of a, of a case study. So, a, a case that Diane and I just finished, maybe about a month ago or a month and a half ago, which went through trial, where there was we were in the midst of cross-examination of a complainant. It was a domestic situation where there were allegations of assault, threats, um, sexual assault, and it was a very there were very stark, very harsh allegations. And we're going to remind you about that. But one good point that you're talking about now is, as we alluded to in the other one, we had to bring these motions to admit messages and documents and pictures and videos that we had in, as evidence that we could use to contradict the complainant's narrative. Something popped up today that I think you think is really important to talk about right off mm -hmm. the top that doesn't necessarily deal with the case we have, but it, it just goes to show how these applications and how insidious um, counsel for the complainant can actually be, and it can be quite scary if this ever gets allowed. So sometimes frame can, I, it. can I use the words? Uh, I like the word specious sometimes. But uh, to me, this is this is actually quite dangerous. So yeah, and, and that's the thing. So what we've found is that we we file our applications well in advance, and then we don't get replies until the last minute, and then quite often these replies are making sometimes bizarre arguments that we feel the need and 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 I think it's been justified in in the results that we've had that we have to file then a reply to their reply. This is an example of one in this yeah. case which is So we've got our application and we've got our reply which is almost as thick actually. <laughs> it's literally I don't know 90 paragraphs long just the reply to their their reply. <laughs> I know. And so one of the problems that we found is that um, quite often the evidence that we and you know to be clear we have to predict what evidence we might want to use before we go to trial. So right. we're basing we it, it all off out. of no. We have to base it off the the police statements and and so forth and and things that we think might become relevant. But we're required to put everything in. Right. So when we're when we're drafting out our original application to admit messages and documents, um, emails, Snapchat chats or whatever else. And, and, and videos, et cetera, we have to lay out a full factual foundation for this. 
and how it relates to the evidence that we expect to come our way. And what we rely on is the interview of the complainant and any witnesses. And we turn them into transcripts and we have to rely on face value that that indeed will be the evidence. And that's how we put forward our argument. And importantly too, that sometimes the evidence is based on what we expect our client to testify to. So it's not just something that might impeach a complainant to show that they're not being truthful or something. It, it could be evidence that we think will um, add support to what it is that we're expecting our client to testify to. So the other aspect to, to break down so everybody understands is when we draft them, we have made a tactical decision, we spoke about this before, mm -hmm. that we literally lay out our client's anticipated evidence, what, we, what our defense is gonna be. In, in fairly significant detail. And then that's laid out in their affidavit the that supports it. The requirement is actually, I keep on saying actually, no, I keep on hearing all the time, is, you know, fairly, it is minimal. You just have to, um, you know, give, give a basic something in writing. Right, it's, but, it's but we, we've gone way beyond that. And the reason for that is we've succeeded in all of our applications because we've done that. So when there's an argument that it's not relevant, or, or they're arguing a myth, or they're, because they say this to us, you're arguing a myth, it's not relevant, how can it bear on the uh, issues at trial? The judges almost invariably go back, well, they lay it all out there. Mm -hmm. Literally, the whole defense is there for you, Madam Crown Attorney or complainant lawyer. And so we've made that tactical decision, which is really important, and so we're gonna stick to it. But that said, I just, this one thing that happened to Yuvika today in court, it's like, it's just, it, it, it's- That was just, crazy. It's just nuts. And I'm trying to bring down my swearing per podcast. Like I just noticed in the last one, there was a lot of bleep. So I'm trying not to say crazy, even though it was crazy. It so, was. so just late. So this was one of those applications where our, our colleague in our office, one of our associates wrote an application based upon the format that we have, making the same decision that we're gonna lay out all the defense, lay out all the evidence, show how it's relevant and relate it to our client's evidence as well. So that, like you said, it shows how our client may be credible and, 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 and how that flows. <laughs> and then just tell what, what, what did the complainant lawyer ask the court to do? This is- They actually just, wanted, they actually wanted the defense to turn over their entire draft of the cross-examination that they planned to engage in at trial. So that the complainant- what, She wanted an order. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> she wanted an order to vet the cross-examination of the complainant. Mm -hmm. Whether that would be in the format of turning over the entire cross because not every lawyer writes out their crosses. I mean, we do, even well into 30 years of practice, I actually draft it out, but not everybody does. So they wanted an order to vet the cross-examination of our associate It's insane. So they, they'd actually know, again, actually, everything that you were going to ask them before they get asked at trial so they could prepare, you know, their answers. Okay, so just, let's just stop because I'm not suffering from a delusional disorder. I'm not. I'm, I'm, for the most part, sane, I think. My wife will say that sort of, okay. We have other members here. We have our new partner Michael Burry here we have Baz outstanding investigator we've got our producer knows I'm I'm not I'm not psychotic right this actually happened so a lawyer acting for the complainant thought it was appropriate didn't think it was actually a sign of insanity 
to make a request to vet the defense lawyers cross-examination basically give us everything up front so there's no surprises there's no can you imagine in a criminal trial the reason cross-examination is so effective well, how, how do you describe that? You know, Cross-examination, as we've said in another episode, you get to test the truth. Is the most important, <laughs> you know, uh, mechanism for truth finding in the trial in a criminal trial process, and and there has to remain an ability to have some sort of, you know, not full disclosure of what you're going to do. That you know, it's I don't like calling it surprise, but a, a complainant ought to know their evidence and ought to know what happened. Yeah, an accused you're is not allowed preparing. to. For an exam, you're preparing to tell the truth. Right. So we're allowed to draft our cross-examinations in any way we see fit, as long as it's relevant and doesn't trench upon these myth-based reasoning or other impermissible areas. And we're allowed to do it. And we're not, we don't have to give notice. We don't have to give disclosure. But our prime minister and the then Justin, justice uh, minister decided that this one area of law, we should actually have to disclose all the material in our possession that are records and vet that before a court. And then the Supreme Court of Canada actually said, even if it's the subject matter of the offense, it probably should go through anyways. I know, right? that's, that's bizarre. So this is the one area of law that we come back to time and time and again, where we say we actually have to give defense disclosure. And subject matter of the, of the offense, to be clear, if you have a video of the, act, uh, of, of the sex act that you're being accused of in, in terms of a sexual assault, if you had a video of that, you might not be allowed to use it because now they've changed it, it was, it was immune if it's the actual subject matter of the charge. Say that slowly and explain it so everybody understands because it's a legal determination now that, that altered the landscape completely. It's, it's, it's extremely important. So just say it again so everybody understands it. Well, historically the concern with um, you know, sexual assault evidence has been if you're looking to bring in other sexual evidence. So prior sexual activity was originally the thing. Now it's anything of a sexual nature that isn't the actual thing that you're charged of. Right, so let's just, just give an example. There's an allegation that on a particular day at a particular time, there was an unwanted sexual act that happened. And the complainant is saying it was non-consensual and that's the complaint. And then you don't want them to then be confronted with other sexual activity that was consensual in order to say, oh, well, you, con you consented, you know, a year ago or a week ago, therefore you're more likely to have consented this time. Right. And that evidence is generally not admissible for good reasons. And it's other sexual activity. But that is other sexual activity. And what used to be immune from, from this type of scrutiny was evidence specifically related to the complaint. So that particular act that's alleged. So that's what we call the subject matter of the charge. So, for example, if there was a video for some reason of that particular act and the defense thought that that video showed that there was consent, maybe even enthusiastic consent, you could try, I'm saying that in a tongue-in-cheek manner. Or simply it didn't, didn't occur in the way it was described. You didn't have to vet that because it's subject matter of the offense, but Supreme Court says we do. That, and the, the, the concept is that even though it's the subject matter of the charge, that if it's, say, a video, that the complainant could have really high expectation of privacy because the video may convey very intimate graphic Right, so content. the video the video is a record, therefore it's subject to Section 278 of the Criminal Code, and there's a number of things you have to look at, which includes privacy interests, including that may have highly sensitive, intimate 
details that um, need to be protected. Now, in the case of course, I don't really understand that if it's the actual charge. Now, in the case that, that we're trying to um, break down into the, all these components, there were some um, there were some records which we agree were records because they're highly um, you know graphic content yeah. that we did not attempt to bring into trial because there was enough other evidence that it would allow us to make the same point. So we were not being gratuitous in terms of what we wanted to bring in. We weren't yeah. we weren't going in trying to embarrass the complainant. We were trying to be conservative. We were. We 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 looked at certain things and said it's not necessary. We can prove. Uh, our defense through other ways, so we decided not to. But again, just to go back to this point, so that type of evidence has to be scrutinized by the court. So when you think about, I think we'll just finish off with this mm -hmm. this one thing that happened to our colleague and then move on. It's just the absurdity of, if, if you think now that everything you have as a record, um, including something about the subject matter of the offense, as now you've learned what that is, on top of that, to actually ask a court for an order to then vet cross-examination is is actually insane. And, and it gets to a level where we will treat sexual assault cases in such a manner that it will be almost impossible to have a fair defense. Because if that ever does get ordered by a judge, that will eliminate an ability to be creative in cross-examination, to be spontaneous, and to work with the evidence in a way that lawyers are trained to do when responding to witnesses or complainants. It will completely sanitize and in my opinion eliminate the ability to have any type of real defense. And that's that's just crazy. We, I, this absolutely hurt. happened. It was in court today. It was denied by the judge. But God forbid this should ever come to fruition. Well one of the things that we're seeing as well is that if we have, uh, we're pulling out messages that we think might be relevant and it may be something that we want to use, we're being told well, you know what? You already have that. So if that's what you want to use it for to prove that, why do you need eight? You know, you already have two or three. And yes, they're trying to put a limit, like some sort of arbitrary number on how much evidence that is probative. They admit it's probative. Yeah. You say, so, well, you have this one and that one. But so let's explain that. Why do you need eight? Let's come back to let's come back to the case study, because this is really an outstanding point that Diana's making. And again, how insidious these 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 arguments from complainant lawyers or crown attorneys can be about evidence because this wouldn't exist before there wasn't like a, a, a limitation on you can have five contradictions but you can't go for six or seven right. you know th that's literally what they're they're trying to say here so in this case again there was allegations spanning about a year and a half to almost two years of the relationship mm -hmm. they involve various acts of uh alleged assault, including something allegedly at a casino that you would imagine was on surveillance. Um, uh, there was uh, an assault in a car. There was a sex assault close to the time that the complainant wanted to leave. But I think what's most important for framing our stuff is throughout this time, the two are carrying on a relationship, sometimes living together. There's tons and tons of communication between the two of them by way of all sorts of forms of messaging, WhatsApp, email, etc. Lots of pictures and videos because they like to do that. And the last four months or so, the complainant had described that she basically was imprisoned, wasn't able to move without him essentially surveilling her. 
and we went in the last episode. The funny thing was that, in fact, she had control over clients, our client's Facebook. But leaving that she aside, she was stalking his, yeah. his social media. She was in this horrible zone where, you know, in the last week and a half, she was being beaten every day and, um, and uh, had been sexually assaulted and was planning her escape and just had to get out and just planned her escape properly. So when she, he finally left, she was able to run away, get to her mother and leave. With nothing but the clothes on her back. Clothes on her back. So this is pretty, again, as I said in episode one, this is like on its face, you'd be like, oh my God, this is horrific. Like this is, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but it didn't happen in this case. But this was the evidence from the complainant. And on its face, one could easily think that this woman was traumatized and beaten and hurt through this time and somebody could be convicted of it. Now, we have all this messaging, so we bring these motions. One of the arguments that you're going to talk about right now, which is a popular argument, is we literally had like tons and tons of messages and tons and tons of pictures and videos, and we were selective as to what was the most relevant. And also, as you said, we were conservative about what imagery we wanted to put in. Bless you. But the argument, and, and I want you to just take your time with this argument and explain the argument about uh, some sort of limitation on how many pieces of evidence we can try and have admitted and cross-examine on a trial. Just explain it, and I'll try and keep my blood pressure down. Well, like like you mentioned, there's a significant time frame involved. So, and, yeah. and there's the I don't even know how they functioned because they were doing nothing but messaging each other all day long. There was a, a lot of material to go through, and like you said, we we were conservative, and then what we say is basically, you know. You've already proven this point. She said she didn't stay in touch. She did stay in touch. Why do you need to prove that again, right? We're talking about months leading up to one of the questions people always want to know, why did the report get made? Why did the allegation get made at the particular time frame? So what was going on each month becomes important because it shows a progression and it was a real volatile relationship. It went back and forth. And what we're seeing is they're saying, well, essentially you're gonna swamp her. You're gonna kill her with this. <laughs> it's overkill. Yeah. So that's the argument. It's so overkill. It's it's too much. But and, when you're defending somebody's life against prison, oh wow. Well, how but, much is too much? Well, you know, who cares about the accused? But so so let's break this down again. So again, these allegations are over the course of a year and a half to two years. The person doesn't go to the police. So there's a physical separation at the end of December. And she's very defined about the date that she escapes. It's seared into her head. And we have messaging around that time that completely contradicts the narrative. But then for months afterward, she says she doesn't have communication with her client, doesn't see her client. Well, there was some communication, but I was replying to him only. I didn't want to Only reconcile to tell him with to leave him. Her alone. Right. I didn't want to reconcile with him. He was stalking me. He was harassing me on and on and on. So about eight months later is when she ultimately goes to police, which just so happens to be in the messaging we can see where our client is threatening about, about suing her or going after money he gave her because he felt essentially he was being led along because of financial security and other issues. Leave that aside. We had tons of messages that completely contradicted the narrative of everything that the complainant had said during relevant times of the relationship, including not one mention of abuse, like all sorts of stuff, complaints about all sorts of things um, and, and verbal 
complaints. Like, you know, you, you're being an asshole to me. You're saying things that are, are not nice. But not, it's completely devoid of anything of this alleged abuse, both during and after her alleged escape from the house. And the argument consisted... Plus it showed that there were other people that were involved in, in, in causing her anger. Yes, but... There were female. But again, but, but because we had such really compelling material that completely contradicted her narrative and showed a very coherent pattern which supported our client's testimony as to how things went along and afterward, how they actually were together, how they actually did spend time together, how it's all contrary to what she said. The art, one of the main arguments that they kept trying to hammer home and we see is this one. Mm -hmm. It's too much. It's too much. And there's a really interesting thing when we did our reply. This is, I really liked this section because I thought it was so important, uh, called the integrity of the trial. And this is where we had to do an attachment with this as well because there was a summary given by the complainant's lawyer of what the evidence was that, that we were seeking to introduce. And the summary of what was being said in those uh, sections of, of messages was so inaccurate that it, it was almost mind-numbing. So we had to do another one saying, this is what the complainant says these messages say. This is what, if you look at them, this is what they actually say. Right. And then... Um, after summarizing what these messages you know, apparently alleged, allegedly said, there was uh, uh, interpretations offered, which is an issue for trial. So, so okay, so then we moved from there's too much and it should be severely limited because it's essentially too much to then um, issues about whether it's really relevant because what's all really relevant is whether she consented at the time. So what we talk about is sex in a box. Mm -hmm. And then in order to deal with all of the inferences that we suggested a court could draw as to how this evidence was probative in, in assessing credibility and reliability, the complainant and the Crown's lawyer also talked about how credibility is not really the issue, but then started to offer... Or you're not even allowed to attack credibility. Which was just patently wrong. It's wrong in law and nobody bought that. The judge didn't buy it, thank God. But, but, but offered these interpretations. Just expand on that a little bit more. What that meant. So the complainant's lawyer then did what with what we suggested. And why is that bad? Like, why is that a potential danger that can lead to a wrongful conviction if ever accepted by a court that this interpretation therefore should mean that that piece of evidence shouldn't go in. Well, at trial, um, you know, messages might be put into evidence or they could be, you know, uh, read out to somebody during the trial to say, did you, did you send this thing? And then it's an argument for trial as to what was going on during that conversation. And a complainant may say, no, that's not really what I was trying to say. That's not really how I felt. That's an issue for trial. And it's up to the trier of fact, be that a judge or a jury, to decide who they believe. So what we're seeing now in these pretrial applications is a lawyer saying they shouldn't be allowed to use that evidence because I'm already going to tell you what the complainant says it means. Right. So let's take let's give an innocuous example. Okay, so there's messaging back and forth and the complainant is saying, I, I love you, husband, or I love you, and I can't wait to see you again, blah, blah, blah. And so our taking a very simple explanation saying well, what we're trying to say is the complainant had actually said that she did not maintain contact with her client and did not want to reconcile and did not um, have a desire at all to, to uh, be emotive with him. 
okay, here's messages where you're writing to our client, expressing your love, etc. And then the interpretation would be, well, the reason the complainant did that was to basically uh, prevent him from harassing her more. In other words, just to placate him for the time being until she got her life on track. Mm -hmm. Out of the f***ing blue. That's, that's evidence for trial. That's an interpretation that was put forward by a complainant's lawyer to say that's why this isn't admissible. Here's an explanation as to why she was doing this. Just think about that for a moment. This is on a motion. This isn't a trial. Right. So you're right. It's what? It's an issue for? It's an issue for trial. It's for the, the judge or the jury to decide the credibility issues that are at play and what they decide they think those messages actually convey. Yeah, so that's another shocking argument. And we're trying very hard in these motions to push back to say that's not the role of the complainant's lawyer. They're not here to interpret. It's, it's merely to explain... Um, something that's relevant that could lead to an inference that supports our defense or that uh, refutes a fact by the complainant. I don't know if I sounded too legal there, but that's all you really need to do. That's the threshold. Well, I, I think the main point, and maybe this is what we can end this one on, is that um, the way these are being conducted almost implies that if you're charged with a specific offense, mainly sexual assault, that you don't deserve a trial. I, it really just seems... You shouldn't be allowed to call any evidence because of the nature of the charge. Okay, so so it's a good point. So let's just talk about it for a couple of minutes, and then I guess I, I don't know how if we're running long. But so again, what we're talking about this aspect for the case study is this motion to admit all this highly relevant evidence, and essentially what you're saying is the arguments that that the court is hearing and heard in this application was all of this is irrelevant. All that's relevant is what the allegation was at the time that the sex occurred. It's the state of the mind of the complainant. And all this other stuff is really collateral. Yeah. The consent is in the mind of the complainant. So if she says she didn't consent, we must believe. And if you're going after her credibility, saying that she's not credible or reliable, then you're somehow engaged in a myth. And essentially what that would do would take away the ability for somebody to have the right to a trial. And, and, and what they're trying to say is that any... Any reliance on these messages to establish what we say we want is really about stereotypes and myth-based reasoning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the successes we've had, which was in a, a different case, paragraph 111, where we had to try and push back onto what really would lead to a myth or not. And I think maybe we'll end in this. Uh, the judge said that I accept defense counsel's observations that there is a difference between arguing that a complainant would have or should have behaved in a certain way based on a comparison to an imaginary real victim, as opposed to talking about the plausibility of how this particular person behaved in the actual circumstances described. Assessing the coherency of a narrative based on testimony provided by the complainant herself and other evidence regarding the actual sequence of events or circumstances is proper consideration when evaluating testimony. Stereotypes become a concern only when conclusions are not grounded in the evidence. Right. And that's the job at trial is that, you know, whoever the trier of fact is, be it judge or jury, these are people who are completely unknown to them. And, and we need to try and establish who these people are so that you can understand and assess properly uh, whether or not you believe the, the testimony of what they're but saying. Just give me one more minute on this. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is so important because a trial is about how do you prove, how do you, look, frankly, as a defense, you have to prove in my opinion, that the complainant's story is not plausible. It, it, it's not 
It's not, it's not something we understand as making sense. It's not plausible. Her behavior was not plausible, grounded in her own evidence. And you have to attack that. And you have to have access to those materials in order to do that. To try and push that away would really sanitize a trial and lead to wrongful convictions. So we live and die by this one paragraph, and it's being accepted more and more. And mm -hmm. In cases, in case anybody's curious, the citation is R.V. So Regina at the time was Regina versus J brackets D 2021 ONSC 1300 paragraph 111. But this is an example of, of a brave decision of a judge understanding the argument of how you have to meet these narratives and have to fight against them. But we are, but boy, the pushback on this is just getting more and more absurd. It is actually a case worth reading, so it's kind of interesting. <laughs> but, All right. Well, we'll talk more in, in the in the third episode about. But what happened in in the other case that we're looking at? Because because it, it gets really, um, well, it was it was quite satisfying the way this resulted. So we'll talk about the mid trial application. So we'll leave you on a cliffhanger. <laughs> oh, like, can you say that? Oh, you have to uh, hit like, subscribe, notifications. If you're on, I think it's on Apple, then you can leave a comment. Leave comments on YouTube too, because... And again, have, emails. Email we, us we with, any, <laughs> with anything you want us to cover, because we do get comments and, and emails. It's very helpful. Thank you, guys. All right. All right. Good night, everybody.